Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Hump Day, the first of the year 2024. We are here, indeed. We've got Becky Curry, a member of the Mississippi House of Representatives. Represents a District 92 at 1035. And then at 1205, it's Senator Nicole Aikens Boyd. Represents District 9. That includes Lafayette and Panola counties. Uh, Representative Curry is the representative of District 92, as we stated. That includes Copiah, Lawrence, and Lincoln counties. So looking forward to those discussions on the program today because that legislature is all in session, as they say. We got us a Speaker of the House. Well, they're in session, but they're uh, not in the building. Please tell the uh, good people about what's going on down there at the Capitol this morning. Yeah, about... 6.30 this morning, a little after 6.30 this morning, a bomb threat was called in or emailed in or sent in to the authorities, the Capitol Police and the like. So they have roped off all the entrances and are, I think, still to this point checking to make sure that the all clear can be given. It's being described as suspicious activity in and around the state Capitol. My daughter, who works down there across the street, at the Garden Building, where the Secretary of State is housed, uh, said she had to show ID to get in the parking lot, which is good. The Capitol Police patrolling, securing the area. My understanding is, last I heard, that Speaker of the House Jason White said, don't come in until further notice to the members of his chamber. Is that what you heard as well? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they've given the all clear yet. I haven't seen anything yet, no. This is so crazy, isn't it? Is this just a practical joker? Is this a credible threat? And you know the problem is... Well, the practical joker facet of it would be the best-case scenario. Agreed. There's really not a good scenario when you have a bomb threat, but being a prank is your best-case scenario. Yeah. I think about the worst-case scenario is if you put on the the tinfoil hat for just a second and you think, wait a second... We've had a whole lot of bomb threats across the state, and if you expand your view, we've had a whole lot of bomb threats across the country. Yeah. What's going on? 
who's poking and prodding? Who's trying to figure out what our responses are? Yeah, that's pathetic is what it is. Uh, either way. And I'm uh, distraught that this is happening ever. I guess you could say it's even more concerning that it happens on day two. Maybe. Doesn't really matter. It's just a bad deal all across the board. Let's hope that the situation is resolved and gets cleared up here soon. Sooner rather than later, for sure. And that uh, the legislature can re-enter the building there and get on with the business. Wow. Incredible. Didn't expect to hear that this morning when I woke up and got the notification rather early. So, yesterday I did head down to the Capitol after the program and enjoyed the uh, proceedings as Speaker of the House Jason White was uh, officially sworn in there. And then Representative Manley Barton, he is the Speaker Pro Tem. And then they broke up into groups to make some rules <laughs> for the House. And then there was a reception last night. Well, sl- of course. Slash fundraiser for the new speaker. That was at uh, two Mississippi museums. Uh, wife and I and daughter attended, enjoyed that. It's a good, good event. Uh, the, the speaker delivered, I think, uh, some encouraging remarks. And it's it's all, it's clear he's off to the races, man. He says that Republican dominance is the way to move Mississippi forward. And it, of course, he was Speaker Pro Tem under former Speaker of the House Philip Gunn, and he's focused on things to to improve the quality of life in the state rather than scoring political points. He made that statement. He said, let's make this time count. The folks sent us here are counting on us to adhere to our campaign promises and hold fast in the ideas of limited government and individual freedom. Made that clear. I expect that the agenda is going to be aggressive. Just the That's just the impression I got from the remarks. So there, uh, you've got d- numerous issues. We've talked about them many times in the program, and we'll discuss them with uh, both the representative and the senator that we'll have on the program today. And in fact, we'll continue those discussions with all members to just kind of get their take, their stance on the key issues. School choice, of course, is one. You heard Mr. Carswell from the Mississippi Center of Public Policy state yesterday that's the top priority for his policy advocacy organization. That's top priority. Then you've got the issue of tax reform. You've got PERS. Of course, I talked about that quite a bit. And I will say that the article that I put together that is can be found on our supertalk.fm website, it is received lots of hits. It's been read quite a bit by members of the House, and all I was really trying to do was educate a little bit, inform, and, and kind of frame the issue. they got to take that up. And then there's health care. What to do about that, if anything? You know, what role does government play, if any, 
in that, but you can't ignore it. What's going on? Got an update. Yep. Leaning more towards the worst-case scenario of who's trying to figure out how we respond. Mississippi is not the only state capital to receive a bomb threat today. What's going on? There have been at least five state capitals that have received a bomb threat today, Mississippi being one of them. Also included in that list is Kentucky, Georgia, Connecticut, and Michigan. What the heck is going on? What's up? This is nuts. They're just idiots out there. I'm just going to call them that. That's what you are. And according to the reporting I'm seeing, the threat was sent out to multiple secretaries of state via a mass email. Oh, geez. So, uh, you know, I'll just say this is this is a lot more than just politics. If you've got political grievances, well, let's talk about them. Don't go threatening to blow up buildings. I We've seen enough of that. We've seen this doxing crap. we got Supreme Court justices that have had to hunker down and are constantly vigilant because of threats over the Dobbs case. you got members of the House of Representatives, specifically Marjorie Taylor Greene, I can't remember the other, that got swatted over Christmas. You want to explain what that is? It's when somebody calls the police and says, yeah, yeah. You, you basically have a, you call, it's a bad actor calls 911 and comes up with a crime that has been committed that will necessitate a swift response from law enforcement. Usually they'll say, I've got hostages or I've just killed several people or I'm, I'm at this location. I'm fixing to start shooting people. Like they, they come up with some of the most dastardly things because they're trying to get the most extreme law enforcement response they can. Yeah. But the address they're giving is the address of their victim who is getting swatted. Right. And over the holidays, the home of Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, she says that's the eighth time that's happened. And I can't remember the other rep that's also experienced this swatting stuff. And it's it's dangerous is the problem. So it's not only is it false, and you end up dispatching lots of resources, as you suggested, especially if what the example you gave is what's reported. Yeah, they're going to kind of maximize the response there. So it's lots of resources, and it's it's... Lots of law enforcement officials with a lot of firepower is what it is. And they come in expecting a very tense situation that they're going to have to deal with. And it's it's risky, it's dangerous, it's disruptive, it's expensive, it's all the above. It's bad. They think they're cute. Of course, if you don't respond and say, oh, this is just a, a prank, well, then you run the risk that it's real and somebody gets hurt. We're going to step aside for a break right here on Middays. Again, at 1035, Representative Becky Curry. And at 1205, it's Senator Nicole Akins-Boyd. The legislature's in session, but they're not in the building down there at the Capitol due to this ridiculous bomb threat. Back with you from the Element Well Studio. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s. 
Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk Mississippi. Mark, Don, and Mel, a.k.a. A, pardon me, Grand Funk Railroad. <laughs> Good tune there. Appreciate that. So, um, you know, old Claudine Gay, she's out of there. Well, out of the presidency. Right. She's no longer the president. She's still going to make almost a million dollars teaching her nonsense in political science classes. Is that insane? How could she be even She's not up allowed? to snuff on the standards to be the president of the university, but she could still teach her nonsense to the impressionable minds of students. 900 grand. Despite the fact that she is a prolific liar is what she is. She, let's call it what it is. It's lying. Do you think she ever submitted any content in her academic career that was of her own creation? I'm, I'm beginning to think she didn't. Because there's just example after example of plagiarism. I mean, it wasn't word for word, 100% copying, so there was at least something in there that... You're generous. Yeah. So, I uh, I saw this out on social media on what's called Twitter. And I immediately began laughing out loud, and you'll see why in a minute. And it's related to you. To me. It's related to... A refrain you like to use on the program. Ah. Here it goes. First black female president of Harvard, serial plagiarist who resigned after the shortest tenure in school history. First black female SCOTUS justice doesn't know what a woman is. First black female vice president speaks in word salads and has the lowest approval rating of any vice president ever. It's almost like appointing people based solely on their race and gender is a bad idea. (laughs) Did you write this? (laughs) No, but it it does sound like something I would say. (laughs) It's not almost like, of course. That's a tongue-in-cheek way to state it. No, it's like. Not almost. It's 100% like. You mean... Hiring people, promoting people, appointing people, electing people based on, I don't know, race and gender rather than merit, capability, qualifications, experience, and all that sort of stuff is a bad idea. Say it ain't so. It's almost like these conversations were had and answers were given a couple generations ago. We had a big old social argument about it. That's true. And all came to an agreement that judging someone based on the melanin content of their skin or the gender that they live with is a stupid way to go about business. And one of the most revered leaders in the history of our nation and world told us as much. Did he not? Has a day of the year named after him. Wow, have we ever drifted away from his ideals, his vision? 
It's almost like we should return to that. He would be, Dr. Martin Luther King, astonished at what he sees, at what's going on today, pardon me, if he were around. Unbelievable. The, uh, you know, Miss Gay here, she really didn't take this very kindly, in my view. She did not, uh, I mean, really offered no apology whatsoever for what happened here. And in fact, I'd say it's quite the opposite. If you saw her statements, I, I read her letter. Her letter was published in the Harvard Crimson, but her statement Amidst all of this, it has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor, two bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am. There's a whole lot of I, me, and my That's in there. exactly right. But get this, and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. Oh, it's the woe is me, this is all about race crap. Uh, right, it's got nothing to do with the fact that you cheated, you're a serial plagiarist, that you fail to acknowledge in uh, the United States House of Representatives on the floor there, you have failed to acknowledge that calling for the genocide of Jews and hostilities which were being perpetrated on your campus towards Jewish students, the Jewish community, are bad. No, no, you couldn't say that. You couldn't announce that. You couldn't acknowledge, yeah, that violates our university's code of conduct. Rather, you had to say, well, it depends on the context. If I had a dime for every time a liberal says, we well, have to contextualize it, I'd be a very wealthy man. And that's the, it goes back to, we just can't reach a consensus on right, wrong, good, evil, past, fail. We can't, we can't decide what that is. Well, there's really only one side to blame for that dissonance. It's the left. Because nothing is ever good enough for the left. That is so true. Exhibit A, what we were just talking about, the civil rights movement, feminism. We had these conversations already. We came to a consensus. But it's never good enough for the people that make a living off being aggrieved. That's so true. What's really sad as well, you probably saw it, social media goes crazy. You know, our old friend, I say that with tongue-in-cheek, obviously, Ibram X. Kendi. You know who he is? He's the, uh, I think it was Boston University professor that is known for the statement that we must fight past racism with current racism. And and current racism with future racism. In other words, you got to be racist to atone for racism. More racism is the way to fix racism. That's essentially what his belief and message is. This is what he said yesterday after Ms. Gay resigned. Racist mobs won't stop until they topple all black people from positions of power and influence who are not reinforcing the structure of racism. 
What these racist mobs are doing should be obvious to any reporter who cares about truth or justice as opposed to conflicts and cliques. Look in the mirror there, dude. You thrive on conflict, on confrontation, on chaos, on attention, on cliques. Unbelievable. So nothing about... Again, her disastrous testimony on the Hill, nothing her, about her history of racism, nothing about any of that. And that, honestly, she was only hired, and everybody knows it, because of those physical attributes. It's a trophy to the board. But I tell you what, there are folks now calling for the board members to resign. And you do have to ask the question... Why did you even let her resign? Because she gets attention from that and is now held as a martyr. And, by the way, as you pointed out, gets a $900,000 a year salary and still gets to brainwash. And you know she will. It'll be woe is me in every class she teaches. Poor, pitiful me. No doubt. While she's taking home nine hundred grand, Please explain to me how that's racist. 900 grand. This coming from a person that I'm quite sure aligns with a party that thinks anybody that's ever earned any income is just dastardly, evil, wicked. It's incredible. They should not have allowed her to resign. She should have been summarily terminated, in my view. It's ludicrous. She should have been fired weeks ago. And it's it's because Harvard, like so many other educational institutions in our country, they're all in on this racist DEI insanity. It's all about that. You you feel like they're going to pick somebody with the exact same ideology, checks the same boxes. In fact, who was it that came out and said, uh, one of the professors that is you see a lot in the news, he came out and said, Harvard has got to hire a black woman. Here we go again. He has already said it. Got to hire a black woman. Where do we get to this box check and stuff? When, when do we, we let a whole bunch of infantile idiots start running their mouth way too much and taking control of the social narrative without the adult saying, sit down and shut up, you're full of it. That's what's missing. I, I completely agree. Unbelievable. So, uh, yeah, you got folks saying that, yeah, we just got to replace her with somebody just like her. From, again, from a physical attributes perspective, characteristics, not from a capability qualifications. We got Becky Curry, the representative from District 92, in next. And later on the program, I'm going to discuss some ways I think we can fix colleges in this country. Coming right back. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're live with you in the Element Well Studio, a little Baba O'Reilly by the who? Appreciate that, Rhino. So five capitals, right, we figured out were involved, because I know our news director, J.T. Mitchell, just stuck his head in, wanted to make sure we were aware that Georgia is one of them, said it's a hoax email sent to a state employee. They just released a statement a few minutes ago. So is there any... Thing that's common about the states, these capitals, Rhino, that you see? I Just mean, that they're state capitals or it's related to the state capitals. Okay. So we'll see what happens there. We are pleased to welcome Representative Becky Curry into the Element Well studio. She serves uh, as a representative for District 92, which includes uh, Copaya, Lawrence, and Lincoln counties. Don't really know about committee assignments at this point, right? We start that all over again, but good to see you. Happy New Year. Welcome to the program there, Representative Curry. Thank you. Happy New Year. So good to be here. Well, and good to see you yesterday and last night. I thought it was really a good day down there at the Capitol in the House of Representatives. Those uh, those are kind of fun times with the various ceremonies. Folks uh, bring their families in for they're uh, they're swearing in. It was good. I enjoyed that. It was good, and it was glad to. I'm glad to see the new 25 members that we have in the yeah, house. 25. And, and you know, it's uh, a few more women, which you know I like. <laughs> so um, you know, it's fun because I remember being sworn in my first time. How exciting that is! And uh, and now you get to be a, a part of the process. And, yeah. and here we go. And we're starting with a new speaker. Uh, I'm excited. You know, have no idea what committees I'm going to serve on or where, yeah. what I'm going to be doing. But um, it's just all kind of new and different this year. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, it, you could just feel it's a little different, but you would expect that because uh, no two people are the same. But I think we've been so accustomed for a long time with Speaker, a uh, former Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, that just ha- kind of having a, a change there is uh, kind of unique. It is. Um, I really liked um, Speaker White's speech yesterday. Um, I thought he hit some of the big topics uh, without being nervous about it, and uh, he hit them head on, and, and um, I liked all of them, so um, I'm, I'm looking forward to this session and yeah. this term. So he, he hit on a number of the key topics that I, I'm sure that our legislature is going to ad- address. Let's, let's uh, take a look at those. He talked about uh, workforce development, uh, of course, which he felt is critical to the growing the economy of the state of Mississippi. He said that Mississippians uh, feel like that we need a, a better trained workforce to do that. He hears it, as do I, from p- prospective employers or folks looking to perhaps locate and set up shop in the state. So I think that's certainly on target. He talked about infrastructure. He said, quote, Mississippians like seeing their money go back to spending on infrastructure. This will help attract a better business environment. So, um, I mean, those are are key issues. Of course, then we got um, the subject of education and the possibility of expanding education freedom, education choice here in the state. We've got the the challenges with the health care environment, something I know that uh, you're pretty close to, is, is that's your profession. Um, of course, we got PERS. You know what I feel about that and how much I've talked about that. Uh, I call it the elephant in the room that uh, we're going to have to do something about. Um, tax reform is something else on the table. The, the ballot measure process, of course, these are kind of unfinished business uh, from prior sessions. What what are your priorities? What did you make of the speech? What resonated with you? 
what are you going to focus on? Well, of course, I love health care and always have, always will. And, um, you know, just him saying yesterday that he's going to make sure that providers are paid. You know, I know that uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but with our managed care, and I'm going to be really honest with you, we can't do a lot about Medicare, but it starts from Medicare to uh, Mississippi Can with Medicaid, and then you go to Blue Cross, and Blue Cross pays Mississippi uh, the lowest amount than any state in, in the nation. In the country. It's yeah. the lowest commercial reimbursement in the entire nation. And we, we're asking our hospitals to just stay open and and give care no matter what, uh, even if you're in the red. And it, it's just it's not going to continue to work, and we're going to have to do something. Yeah. And, um, you know, so insurance companies continue to get rich. I'm all for capitalism, uh, you know. That's great, but you have to take care of whom you're supposed to be taking care of. And then when you make a profit, good for you. But you can't take home billions and billions of dollars when our hospitals are struggling. Yeah. And that's where I am on that issue. Okay. Well, is there any specific legislation uh, that you, you're thinking about uh, drafting or supporting? Well, if they do Medicaid expansion, I will I will tell you, uh, you know, we haven't had a chance to really look at it. Mm-hmm. So we don't really know how it looks. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if Medicaid expansion is there, I would uh, be willing to look at it. But I can also tell you I won't vote on a bill that doesn't say the day the federal government stops. And you and I both know that the federal government's in a mess. And I think they'll stop paying all this money to uh, each state um, that it that it ends because mm. we will not be able to afford it as a state. So I would I would just have to say I would want that in the bill. Okay. Sure. Well, so the the amount that the state uh has to contribute under the FMAP uh structure uh, basically if if the state were to expand Medicaid and the federal government were to say reduce the their share, which is 90% exactly. for Medicaid expansion, uh that coverage group, the state picks up 10 if that were to change and the federal government reduced, you would you would I would say we yeah. have you know we can't afford it. Yeah, well, and you know as well that the hospitals, uh, of course, have expressed an interest in uh, financially supporting uh, a program as well. If, if we were well, to it, expand, it was Medicaid. approved. Yeah, uh, you know they already are one of the three companies um, that got approval, um, but. Political reasons yeah. that I won't get into, yeah. so I don't get in trouble my first day up here. Um, they hadn't let the contract go. Yeah, I know. But, you know, what I'm saying is the, la- the last I checked into this, the, the hospital association, of course, that's in somewhat of uh, uh, turmoil. But in general, if the state were to expand Medicaid, they were willing to pick up either either oh, most or all of the state's of portion. Of the 10%. Yeah, exactly. That's, I'm sorry. I yeah, went off on I'm, a note. That's fine. I, yeah. I, I, no, I, I thought you about. were talking about no, something else. No, I'm just talking about the financial aspect right. of it. So, I mean, they saw that the cost that they would bear to pick up that, to cover that 10%, would be more than offset with not having as many uninsured Absolutely. Uh, walking through their door. So That's that, right. Right, and that's a problem. But So um, I, I'll share with you uh, something that uh, I've been working on. I've, I've announced it on the air a couple of times. Is a, is a very detailed um, uh, article, I guess. It's almost turning into a white paper because it's getting kind of long 
on healthcare and and some what I call out of the box thinking of how to approach uh, the the situation in the state of Mississippi. I think we've gotten to the point where. And get your take on this when we talk about the challenges in in the healthcare um, systems and just the healthcare ecosystem in the state of Mississippi. It almost always boils down to yes or no Medicaid expansion, and we get proponents that say, "Oh, if we just expanded Medicaid, that fixes everything." And we got folks that oppose Medicaid expansion that say, "Oh no, it really won't help." So I think somewhere in the middle is probably the well, truth. It always is. Yeah. I have to tell you, I've, the best legislation we've ever passed was when both sides got together and we came up with something in the middle. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we have to we have to look at something. Yeah. Um, you know, I have too many patients that can't afford insulin. Yeah. And they're going to have major problems that we're going to be paying for forever. Yeah. So it, there's something we have to look at to get to the middle. Yeah. And then, as you know, we unfortunately have uh, an unhealthy population in our state, and uh, that just applies more pressure to uh, to the system, and and that's such a bigger problem. But we're essentially telling our hospitals and our healthcare providers, you got to take care of these people. I can't help you if you're not getting paid for it. Right. And that's what's happening now. Yeah. So just sorry, we got to at least accept that is a problem. It is a problem. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a problem for a long time. It didn't sneak up on us. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Well, it, it sounds like uh, the speaker's aware that this is a problem in the state of Mississippi, and, and I, I get the impression that he's willing to hear all ideas. And, and let's get the brain trust together and um, start talking about the, the core problems and uh, approaches to resolve those problems. That's the impression I got from his speech yesterday. One of the things that I do like about him is he does listen. He does. I he, agree. And, you know, he doesn't just look through you. He actually hears and participates in the conversation. Yeah. So, you know, he may not agree with you, yeah. but he does hear you. Yeah. So, uh, as I recall back uh, in my, my B-school days, we call that participative management is what, <laughs> it's, right. it's, what it's called. Literally. Right. So, um, and I, I get that impression as well. And I think that's a I think that is a very positive uh, aspect of his personality. I think it's going to serve as well. We got Representative Becky Curry in the Element Well studio coming right back. Stay with us. Is with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. With you in the Element Well studio, we're talking to Representative Becky Curry. The legislative session on day two, if we ever get the Capitol clear, because there is a bomb threat, and we're still waiting for the all clear, so the so the members can go back to the Capitol. You told me you got a lot of work to do to do. I have a lot well. of work today. We're having also uh, the swearing in of all of our state officials. So yeah. your lieutenant governor and attorney general and 
Secretary of State on down the line can't go to work because they're not sworn in yet. So just a crazy thing, you know, and it's kind of like this swatting. I I hope they find who did it because I'd like for them to pay this bill. If you saw the Capitol right now, you'd be shocked. My daughter told me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, She's across the street there, you know, the garden building. So, uh, yeah, she told me. She said it's crazy. It's just crazy over there. Well, all right, let's. Uh, what are your thoughts about um, education freedom? That you know, Jason seems to be. Uh, I, th- I would say much more pro something than the former speaker was. Uh, speaker of the House Philip Gunn, n- not a huge fan. I-, I think that's a fair way to say it. Of uh, certainly universal school choice, he he um, was not one that I think would jump on that. Um, Jason, as you indicated, is open to talk about virtually anything and, and explore all ideas if he thinks that they would be in the best interest of, of the state and its citizens. He seems to be, I think, uh, more favorable towards that. What, what are you hearing? What do you think about uh, that area? I think that a lot of schools may hate this idea, but you got to remember something, and I hope they do. There's nothing uh, that can, is going to injure some uh, a school district, in my my opinion. Yeah. All of a sudden, a particular school you want your child to go to is not going to have, uh, you know, four new buildings right. so everybody can go there. Uh, you know, but but I think more of uh, kids with special needs. Okay. You know, if you need your child to go to Canopy or we have a little uh, school called the Reading Nook in Brookhaven and your child needs that special needs help, then taxpayers ought to be able to take their uh, so we tax have a special needs scholarship or ESA is that not being utilized to the extent it should or do we need to make some changes well there? we need to have more money there okay I and, got you because there's so, some limits on that that's right that's right you're right and so you know you just want the child that needs the extra help I'm a big uh, proponent of if a child is bullied in one school, maybe he would be successful in another okay. school. Okay. You know, but I don't believe that we're going to have this mass exodus from public schools. Right. Uh, but, you know, I believe that competition always makes us a little better. Sure. And, uh, you know, so I believe the tax. I also want to say this your tax dollars need to go where you want them to. Okay. Also, you know what's best for your child. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe that a lot of private schools are going to want state money. Right. Because guess what? That brings in the state. And they're not compelled to do so. And, and that, that's a that's a kind of a myth that a lot of people uh, sort of misunderstand about school choice. Private schools don't have to accept someone, even if they got money. That's right. And I've talked to a lot of private schools in my area that don't that they just don't want it. It's a capacity thing, among others. Well, that's right. Yeah, they're just not going to magically have all these open seats. Yeah. Um, but make your school good. Make your school better. I'm I'm lucky. I have great schools in my district. Uh, you know, but a lot of people don't. Right. Right. Uh, Representative Lee Yancey just texted me and said it's all clear. There's no bomb. Good to go. Oh, so good. Your colleague, I can go back. <laughs> yeah, we, just, we just heard that. Uh, you know, the last time I think you were on the program, I asked you a question about uh, about taxes and tax reform. I think that's something else that uh, Speaker of the House Jason White wants to address. We stopped short of full elimination of the income tax. And something I've repeated numerous times, I don't know if you know this or not, but I asked you directly, if it, if the choice were between elimination of the income tax or elimination or, or significant reduction of the sales tax on groceries, you said, you said that you'd vote, you said I'd vote today 
to eliminate or, or greatly reduce sales taxes on groceries. Absolutely, because we have a lot of people, and especially now, have you, you know, I don't know if you do the grocery shopping, but... Um, I do sometimes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. It is. It's expensive. It's expensive, and people's income didn't go up, but their, their grocery bill sure did. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people... Um, suffer in that area yeah i mean i was behind someone the other day and uh they were putting groceries back it was an elderly person and i picked up that tab that doesn't bother me and and it just hurt me that they were having to pick what they were going to put back Man. and uh you know that's sad some of us are not going to be behind every person that has yeah. to go through that okay. so you know groceries are are a big deal now i want to eliminate the tax mm-hmm. uh I, I do in this day. I think it would bring grocery tax. You talking about or grocery sales? tax or in, just income tax? Okay, all right. I want to do. I want to do it all. Okay, uh, you know. But if I had to pick one today, it would probably be groceries. Okay. Well, do you see that uh, being a key issue that'll be deliberated? I yeah. hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's fascinating. I know we'll be talking to you some more, and I'm sure I'll see you down at the Capitol. It looks like we got the all clear now, according okay, to representative. Okay, now I can go to work. <laughs> you can go to work. <laughs> you, got, you said you got lots of swearing in and stuff to that's, do today. We've got a lot leader. to do. That's yeah. right. So. All right. Always good to see you. Appreciate you coming in. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Representative Becky Curry has been our guest here on Middays. We're in the Element Well studio. Coming right back. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's hour two of Middays. We are coming at you live from the Element Wealth Studio on this... Hump Day! Later on today, it's at 12.05. Specifically, it's Senator Nicole Akins-Boyd in the Element Wealth Studio. We'll get the Senator's thoughts about the 2024 legislative session. Sounds like we got the all-clear down there at the Capitol from what was a bomb a threat earlier today and the members were told to stay away until the all clear was issued and we just were informed by representative lee yancey that is the case the all clear has been issued don't know the details on what the heck was going on down there rhino shared with us that there are a total of five state capitals that received a bomb threat Today, I think it right? might be up to six, adding Montana to the list. Okay, I know Georgia was one because I found an article from a local Georgia television station. I didn't dig too much further than that. Yeah, so there was a threat that went into Helena, Montana at the Capitol at 8.30 a.m. So it's Montana, Connecticut, Michigan, Kentucky, Georgia, and the Magnolia State. Wow. Interesting. Okay, well, glad that, <clears throat> that we got the all clear. And that uh, business can be conducted in our capital. We rely on uh, the government to function there. 
pardon me, and it's a shame that somebody had to be, yeah, I'll go ahead and call him out, an idiot. I don't like using that term, honestly, but in this case, I think it's a propos. There we go. Accurate descriptor. Yeah. Well, uh, let's see here. We got some, yeah, this is an interesting text from Jeff and Carrollton. I thought Obamacare was supposed to make health insurance affordable for everyone, therefore eliminating unpaid hospital bills. Yeah, that is a long and deep subject, and I address that in this article that I'm writing. I go all the way back to what the original intent and uh, the premise of the legislation was, which it, to a great extent was, in fact, what Jeff's talking about there, which is so-called universal coverage, meaning everybody in the country has insurance, and that, by law, that insurance covers uh, minimum essential, what's called minimum essential coverage, MEC. Even if it's not essential to you. That's right. I mean, the government dictates what it it believes is essential on a minimum basis, and and so a great deal of the or a great uh, cause of the precipitous rise in health insurance since the law was passed was just that the government said, "Okay, insurers, all the plans you sell must include X." Just a laundry list of provisions, as Rhino says, whether you need it or not. Whole I will never of, need OBGYN services, but my insurance has to cover it. Yeah, so the uh, these minimum essential coverage requirements, again, a key feature of the law, as was the, the mandate to have insurance. But remember, the mandate was uh, was repealed. It stood the test of the Supreme Court in 2012, uh, it was seen as a uh, as a tax essentially, and and the Supreme Court felt well, the legislature or the Congress does have the authority to impose a tax, as opposed to a fee, a penalty, if you will. Um, but the, so that stood the test. It was President Trump who repealed it. Uh, honestly, kind of in a sideways approach, that really I don't think had a lot of impact. It did for lower income individuals. Some it because did. if you can't afford health insurance, you can't afford a six hundred to twelve hundred dollar penalty for not being able to afford it. That's true, um, and of course there there are approaches inside the legislation, the Affordable Care Act, that were supposed to address all that. One of those was expanding Medicaid to the coverage group that was not eligible for Medicaid prior to passing of the law, and that's able-bodied adults with household incomes below 138 percent of the federal poverty level. And then there was the the marketplaces, the so-called Obamacare exchanges that allowed those who either did not have access to coverage through their employer or if that coverage was offered by their employer, was deemed unaffordable, and there is an an affordability test. It's uh, roughly 9% of a person's income. 
and if the the uh, their cost of premiums, not the total cost of the premiums, which would include the employer's contribution and the employees, but if their cost, their out-of-pocket employee cost of coverage exceeded 9%, then it was considered unaffordable, and they would be eligible to go to the exchanges and buy insurance and receive what are called premium tax credits. It's just a subsidy, if you will, to help defray the cost of the premiums. That I mean, that was the model. So the model was we're going to require employers, over 50 employees, to provide coverage that is affordable. That'll handle that part. Then if they don't, and those that don't get coverage from their employer, perhaps their employer has fewer than 50 employees, and they just elect, we're not going to have a health insurance program as a benefit. Those employees, they can shop in the exchanges, receive subsidies. If their income is below 400% of the federal poverty level, and the premium cost is based on a calculation that is um, performed using a percentage uh, of household income, a percentage is applied to household income to determine their premium cost, the the higher the income, the higher the percentage um, is in the model. The lower the income, the lower the percentage. That's applied to their household income. Boom, that's your cost of premiums. Starts at roughly 2%, goes all the way up to 9%, a little under 9%, at 400% of the federal poverty level. So the bottom line is the uh, kind of the basket approach was Medicaid expansion for the able-bodied adults with household incomes below 138%. These exchanges for everybody that can't get insurance from their employer or where their employer's coverage is deemed unaffordable, they get subsidies for that. Employers are going to have to provide uh, insurance, and if you don't have it, you're going to pay a penalty. All that was supposed to kind of mesh together to achieve this this goal of universal coverage so that nobody would uh, be treated without having a source to pay, a reimbursement mechanism, insurance. Um, and then the other, a couple of other reforms that a lot of people like, even conservatives, honestly. But, of course, this contributed to the cost of premiums, to the cost of insurance, which is insurers were not allowed to sell coverage that had annual caps. Once we paid out so much, we're not paying anymore. And if you have some sort of catastrophic medical event, you could exceed that. And that's what caused medical bankruptcies more than anything. You, if you have, have uh, know anybody that's, for example, had major open-heart surgery, that'll run you hundred grand these days, uh, as an example. Well, if you had coverage that maxed out at, say, 50 in a year, you're on the hook for the other 50. That just is an example. And then there were also some, some plans available prior to the ACA, that um, capped out over a lifetime. Once we paid a certain amount, over your life, we're done. Now, that kept the cost of premiums down relative to what they were once those reforms were implemented that banned so-called annual caps and and uh, lifetime thresholds. So that, that was the idea. I mean, on paper, you know, if what your goal is is universal coverage and eliminating... Um, eliminating medical bankruptcies and hardships and so forth. All that looks great on paper. The problem is in practice, like anything. 
and it and we we saw lots of unintended consequences as they as they say so to to Jeff's point we still have about 33 million people in the country who are not insured now some of that's by choice it's just young healthy people the idea honestly of the mandate as you well know Rhino the mandate was we're going to force the young healthy people to buy coverage and again the concept has some merit because if that were to happen, technically speaking, um, that should reduce the overall cost of, of insurance for everybody because you're bringing in a lot of young, healthy people that are paying premiums, but they're not using the coverage because they don't get sick. They're healthy. There's also something called the medical loss ratio, which essentially limits insurer profit of the 80% uh, of their premiums that they take in in terms of revenue, they have to pay out 80% in claims. It essentially limits their profit. And it's really not a very profitable industry if you just look at the top five insurers in the nation by number covered. They don't make a whole lot of money combined. We're coming right back with Led Zeppelin bumping us out of this segment. Stay with us. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Jones a foreigner bumping us into this segment here. We appreciate you joining us today. We are in the Element Wealth Studio. Are you thinking about or planning for a retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Send us a text on the ceasefire text line 601-879-4395. The Dow is uh, is down. Is falling this morning because we had a jobs report that uh, suggested that employers are still hiring. And I know that should be good news, but it's not to markets because it means the Fed is likely to stand pat and uh, maybe delay any reduction of interest rates. So we have become hyper-focused on interest rates, and the Fed have investors that dial down 264. The uh, NASDAQ also trending downward, got beat up pretty bad yesterday. Apple really took it on the chin as uh, Barclays downgraded the stock. They just are, are struggling to see growth opportunities for Apple Computer, and I think that's a short-term thing. I have confidence that they've got something up their sleeve. The company, by the way, has not made any statements public that I could find with respect to the thrashing the uh, shares took yesterday, falling rather sharply. And a lot of companies in the industry, in the sector, also get beat up whenever you have a bellwether such as Apple. Trending downward. 
Paul and Hernando says, where is your article? Haven't published it yet, Paul. Appreciate the question. Still wrapping it up. Uh, I'm hoping to be complete by Friday is my goal at this point. Uh, I guess um, it's on me. I keep adding. I keep thinking of more things. And and I'll let you know that when you see this article, first of all, it's it's long. It's going to be 7,000 words or so. And it's kind of a, a tutorial, I would say. It's it's a it's a a primer on uh, just healthcare economics, not not the clinical aspect of healthcare. I have zero expertise in that, but just on healthcare policy, federal and state. Um, again, background on the Obamacare and kind of the original ideas behind that, the original premise. What's still in place? What's not? For example, there were a slew of taxes, taxes you may not even know about, such as a 10% tax on tanning beds. That's right. Uh, Taxes on pharmaceutical companies, insurers, medical device manufacturers, a long list of taxes, most of which have been repealed. No revenue from that. Um, And then there's the individual mandate, repealed, as an example. Uh, So lots of information leading up to, okay, in lieu of just expanding Medicaid, what could we do in the state of Mississippi? Because we do have one of the highest uninsured populations in the state. Now, does that mean they don't get health care? No, that's the problem. Problem is they still receive care. They just don't pay for it. So those of us who do pay, believe me, we're paying for the people who aren't indirectly. Because that's essentially how hospitals and the like, mainly hospitals, because they're the ones who typically treat the patients that don't have um, any insurance or no means to pay. They absorb it. Uh, Uncompensated care. They get a little bit of uh, financial assistance from the federal government to offset that. It's called disproportionate share payments. Uh, and it's and it's all based on the number of patients, their patient census, if you will, of uninsured Medicaid, because Medicaid reimburses in general below cost. Medicare, most believe below cost, commercial insurance above cost. So those of us with commercial insurance, we're essentially footing the bill for those without. Um, they they gotta make ends meet somehow. Uh, So I go through some ideas in this article of uh, just some crazy, almost radical, out-of-the-box thinking on ways to achieve this goal of universal coverage and some ways to introduce more market dynamics into the healthcare ecosystem in, uh, in the state. And I hope to be done with that by the end of the week, and I'll surely let you guys know when that's the case, and it will be uh, published, of course, on our our website. It's uh, some stuff I, I guess I've talked about a little bit in the past, but I really felt compelled to just sit down and kind of gather all that into one one document, if you will. goes back to how I even started tracking all that stuff when I was an employer. I was worried about the shared responsibility is what Barack Obama referred to it, and I go through all the details on that. So uh, something that came up yesterday 
from uh, Ben from Madison, who is, of course, a regular uh, listener on our show, that uh, he stated yesterday that he wanted his rep, Representative Michael Guest, member of the House of Representatives in Washington, to co-sponsor an amendment to our Constitution that Thomas Massey has introduced. It would force congressional districts to be drawn based on U.S. population. Currently, the districts are based on population of citizens and not non-citizens. So you see the problem there with the huge influx of migrants across the border. Of course, they have to be accounted for. Now, I don't know how many of these people are are completing the census data. I don't know, but but what it's estimated that it's between five and seven house seats for California alone. Okay, gotcha. That makes sense. You know, just because of the population in the state, uh, a significant amount of which is n- are not citizens. Yeah. So if you counted those, and if and they, if they if somebody's out there making sure, hey, get get yourself counted because. Uh, what Ben says is is correct. That is how our system works. It, it's based on the residents and not the citizens. Uh, that that certainly could skew it, no doubt. It as be, much as ten to fifteen percent. Okay, in states like California could be a factor. Now, as you know, the hurdle to get uh, our Constitution amendment uh, amended is uh, is a high one. Oh yeah. So I'm not sure that. That's possible. Three quarters of the states, as I recall, and is that does that ring a bell? For ratification, yeah, of an amendment. I mean, just to to isn't that right? To actually update the Constitution with yeah, an amendment. Two thirds votes of both houses of Congress, or if two thirds of the states request one by a convention, yeah, then an amendment must be ratified by three fourths of the state legislatures, or three fourths of conventions called in each state. Okay, so. Three quarters of the states, tall order, especially those that are benefiting from this problem. And you'd have to have some of them to get to three quarters, just doing the math there. So that's what I thought, two-thirds of the houses. So the the framers knew the bar's got to be high. You can't just go willy-nilly changing the Constitution. So I I certainly respect that, but uh, I get it, man, and it's a problem. And I think that if you're paying attention to... The crisis, because it is a crisis at the border, the number that crossed into the country last month, I think the highest in, on record in, in any given single month, if I'm not mistaken. It's insane. It's, it's 10, 12,000 a day, it seems like, on average. I believe, in fact, I believe it exceeded 300,000, if I'm yeah, not mistaken. Yeah, for the first time ever. Yeah, uh, for the month of December. This is nuts. And we have a president... Um, and a president's White House press secretary that says it's Republicans that are the problem because they won't give him more money. What they don't explain is that what the president and Democrats want that money for is not to secure the border, but to uh, beef the resources necessary to process the people crossing over. They're not interested in securing the border. And this idea that these 10,000 people a day are coming over are genuinely seeking asylum. And what I mean by genuine, that they are facing some sort of, of harsh oppression in their native country is absurd. We know that's not the case. You'd, you'd be seeing stuff 
literally in video on the streets of these countries where people are being run down physically. I don't mean just you may not like the environment in the country or the well, government. Well, you also wouldn't have nearly as many from South and Central America trying to come all the way to the U.S. for asylum when there's all those countries in, in between. between. Yeah, that could protect them and, and grant them, um, offer them at a minimum asylum from whatever the oppression is that they are uh, uh, ostensibly <laughs> experiencing in their own country. But the bleeding hearts of the left don't exist in reality. They just substitute their own warped reality. Well, that's what's happening here. So I hear you, Ben. And uh, it's a problem, and it and it should concern us all, no doubt. I predict this is going to be the number one issue uh, up right up there with economic matters in the 2024 election. Coming right back. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. Enjoying a little sticks here on the program. That's Tommy Shaw, the vocals, lead guitar, along with Jimmy Young. Dennis DeYoung on the keyboards there. (laughs) Good tune. Appreciate that. Ben says, yeah, the border is a nightmare. This is an issue I believe Republicans can and should make a top priority in the 24 election. You notice that even the Democratic Mayors who are uh, expressing concerns, shall we say, they are they are uh, really calling on the Biden administration to do something. The influx of migrants into their towns, it's overwhelming them. Uh, they don't have the resources, they don't have the money. But but they like to act like Texas does. That's true. But none of them are calling for closing the border. You notice that. We just want more money to take care of all these people. We want the federal government to step in and provide assets and resources. But none of them are saying shut it up. So I think that's what's going to sort of be the heart of the debate, the central theme of the debate. Okay, we got this problem. And the left's going to say, we just need more money and resources to take care of these people and ensure they get the asylum there requesting. And the right's going to say, no, we need to shut the border down. I don't know how that plays out at the ballot box, but that's kind of what I see coming there. We shall see. Uh, no doubt about it. Meanwhile, it cost you at least ten grand to legally become a citizen of the United States. That's ridiculous. People that are following the procedure, abiding oh, yeah. by the law. Ten grand. You're going to spend at least ten grand. I had no idea. That's insane. But if you just show up and say, I'm here for asylum. Yeah. 
You get your your free cell phone. You get your free health care. You get your stipend sent to you, whether you're working or not. And you don't have to show up at court for another decade. Housing. Food, even though they refuse much of the food, they say it doesn't it doesn't really suit their fancy. <laughs> Imagine being demanding when you're being offered free food. You got none otherwise, and it comes at you for free, and you're not happy. So <laughs> it would seem to be more evidence that it's not really seeking asylum. I agree. Well, I mean just look, just the eyeball test. Looking at the folks, they don't look like they're just escaping some sort of harsh oppression. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but they wouldn't look so well kept. It's just a theory I have. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But again, I say if it's that many people in all those different countries. It's statistically impossible for 100% of them to be seeking asylum. Agree. But yet the left... Maintain. The left doesn't like statistics. <laughs> Very true. Because they usually fly in the face of whatever nonsensical narrative they've crafted. Oh, gosh. If I'm wrong, please tell me. But if we beefed up the resources to process, wouldn't the immigrants be legal then? Well, I don't think they're talking about processing them for to become legal citizens. They're talking about the various processing associated with, okay, we're going to let you out. And we're going to give you a court date to come forward to prove that you really are uh, in need of asylum, etc. And what they're talking about is we need more processors and we need more courts and so forth. Not we need more resources to fast-track you through the legal citizen process. That's that's my understanding and hearing them all um, bellyache about the money that they're looking for. So... You know, people that want to come and assimilate into this country and contribute to society and provide value um, and and love this country the way I wish more citizens did, sure, we should embrace that. Legal immigration. Absolutely. Uh, there's, um, there's value to that. But just letting people come across freely the way we are now and spending whatever five minutes to so-called process them, and then, as Rhino says, giving them a court date, come see us in 10 years, and we'll adjudicate your situation. No, that's that's nonsense. And that's not counting the gotaways and the ones that are coming over. And all we're doing is enriching some of the most evil people on the planet, the cartels, honestly. And we wonder why there seems to be a shortage across the country of low-income housing. So true. When we've imported entire states' worth of people that need somewhere to live. So, you know something else? It's uh, not like they're going to buy mansions in the Beverly Hills. Right. Uh, but i tell you what they are getting in uh, Beverly Hills and the rest of the state of uh, California is uh, health care. So this just came up, by the way. Undocumented immigrants can now get health care through the state's Medi-Cal program, and that just went into effect. Uh, Monday, January 1st, undocumented immigrants of all ages will qualify for Medi-Cal, the state's health insurance program for extremely low-income people. It's essentially their version of Medicaid. So now they're going to cover. This is what's crazy. They're bleeding money in California. They're running huge deficits. 
multi-billion dollar deficits. I don't know the latest, like $30 billion or something insane like that. Uh, And now they're adding these costs? This is crazy. Well, you would think that that would be a magnet, right, for those crossing over. That would be an example of a benefit they would get that might be a draw. You're thinking about what state. Of course, Texas is putting them on buses and shipping them to Chicago and New York, who have deemed their cities as sanctuary cities. I mean, they spent the entire Trump administration decrying Trump's attempts to shut the border down and to stem the tide of illegal immigration by saying, we're sanctuary cities. If you come here, we won't turn you over to the feds. Yeah, and and if I'm not mistaken, uh, we attempted to uh, uh, essentially make sanctuary cities unlawful to, to just end that practice. I think Trump was trying to attach federal money right to the cities because cities get lots of federal money for different things. You ain't getting any federal money as long as you hold yourself up as a sanctuary city. I support that. I think that's good policy. You would think that that would um, contribute to stemming the tide of the flow. But no, they don't see it that way. I used to think that no, the the objective here is is make themselves feel good about themselves. I no longer think that. By the way, I'm I'm pretty convinced it is because they're trying to to boost a voting base that will confer power to them permanently. I do believe that. I don't see how you could see it any other way at this point. Um, what uh, the problems we have to deal with in the meantime are are mighty. And I am concerned about, God forbid, something really bad happening in this country that uh, would be committed by what you have to believe are people with ill intent coming across the border. That's a nice way of putting it. I'm talking about people that uh, are in the same vein of those who took down the Twin Towers, shall we say. You know they're coming across. What's the deal with all the the rather young Chinese males coming across. What's that? You know they ain't up to any good. This The idea that the CCP let them come here tells me that they've got a nefarious agenda. If it's not officially state-sponsored, it's unofficially state-sponsored. Correct. Because you don't get out of China and land in the U.S. Not without a high enough score. Right. Social score. That's right. All those people don't rate, no doubt. It's scary. DJ and Summit, so the executive branch is giving this to these illegals. How are they able to bypass the Congress and judicial branches? It's a great question, DJ, and it all goes back to this concern that we have talked about on the show, which is, man, we're more affected by policy and rules and regulations and actions on the part of the sprawling bureaucracy of agencies than the Congress. The Congress really doesn't run the country. The agencies do. They've abdicated that responsibility. Essentially. and In favor of get-togethers. That's absolutely true. So you see it in... um, in a number of issues, student loans is another one where you've probably seen lately, folks, the Biden administration is pretty much defiant of the Supreme Court ruling that says, no, the president with a swipe of the pen cannot forgive 
nearly a trillion dollars of student debt. Well, they're still doing it. And they're still, and Biden or whoever handles his account is still out there on social media tweeting about it, by the way. And all of his, his, his Democrat cohorts, Liz Warren and the like. Uh, so you got that problem. You got all the stupid environmental regulations, all the war on appliances and fossil fuels and so forth. I hear you, though, G.J., I agree. So the, the answer to the question is, until somebody challenges it, they keep doing it. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. So there was an exchange yesterday. President Joe Biden returned from vacation. Did you see the report that he he experienced a, a rather nasty sunburn? He's like really, really red faced down in St. Croix. But uh, as he was, I guess, moving between the helicopter, the airplane, and so forth, he was asked by a reporter, "What about what was he going to do about the border?" He said, "The what?" He said, "The border." And the record number of migrants crossing over, and his response was, they need to give me the money to protect the border. Give me the money. That's been offered. That was offered in the Trump administration. And it didn't get through the Congress to, to construct a wall, which is what makes probably more common sense than anything uh, an obstacle to make it difficult to cross over couldn't get that done. Donald Trump, by the way, even offered some degree of, of amnesty um, but for the DACA population. But the, but the Democrats rejected it. Because nothing is ever enough yeah, it's for the all loony enough. losers on the left. You know, why? I, don't, I never did get that. I don't think Mr. Trump wanted to, to offer that, but he felt like it was worth doing that these people are already here. We ain't sending them home. We'll give you that. Give us the wall. And they said no, because they don't care about the people already here. They care about getting more in here so they can retain power. I, I think really that that delivered that message loud and clear. There's no interest on their part to secure the border. So I'm not buying the crap that Biden is saying here. Oh, yeah, I just need more money. It's just like there's no real interest in saving the climate, save the planet, save yeah. the whales. Except don't pay any attention to light natural gas, which we used to consider green. And don't you dare mention nuclear, which is the greenest energy on the planet. Totally true. Because that's not the underlying reason. Because they don't really want solutions. They just want to whine about their problems until somebody gives them more money and power. I, I agree. Uh, Mo says Mexican leadership... They said they want more aid to reduce the number of illegal caravans headed to the southern border. I say threaten cutting off all aid if they don't secure their southern border. And you know that they're corrupt as all get out and in bed with the cartels and, and profiting from this. You know they are. That's just how they roll, man. Neil from Pontotoc, we were talking about insurance and the uninsured population in the state and the country and who still receive care, 
often uncompensated, mostly uncompensated, and the hospitals and providers end up absorbing those costs. But essentially they pass it on to those who do have insurance to try to cover uh, those extraneous costs. And Neil says that's basically the same deal with car insurance. There is some truth to that. There is a, a shockingly a large number of people that drive vehicles in the state, in the country, that do not have insurance. And if they are involved in an accident, many of them don't have a way to pay. And if that accident involves uh, another or other vehicles that do have insurance, then their uninsured motorists end up paying some or all of uh, the uh, any claims for damages. And, of course, that just means, once again, that the people who are, I guess, trying to do the right thing, and, and in the state of Mississippi, it means obeying the law. You, at a minimum, have to have liability insurance to drive a vehicle. So it is similar in the healthcare environment that there are a lot of people that don't. Thomas, of course, he supports repeal of the EMTALA law, that, by the way, was passed under President Ronald Reagan back in 1986, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. It basically means that everybody has access to emergency services at hospitals that participate in Medicare, which is virtually all, um, even if they cannot pay. They end up in the ERs for various clinical services, and if they don't pay, hospital still has to provide a minimum amount of services to stabilize them. They end up doing more than that, honestly, typically. For fear of lawsuits. That's right. And they don't get compensated for it. And that's what's happening. So that's a federal law. It's been in effect since 1986. It was signed into law by President Ronald Reagan. I don't see it ever being repealed, honestly. But even if it were, I think we have to, as a society, we have to deal with the issue. Okay, what do we do about sick people who don't have the financial means to pay for health care? For, forget Medicaid. Forget EMTALA. Just how do we handle that? What's the best approach? And I, I discussed some of that, by the way, in this article, some ideas I have on how to approach that. And it's it doesn't involve... Government certainly not as the as the sole solution here. But we're stepping aside for a break. We're at the top of the hour. That's Fox News, Super Talk News. Senator Nicole Aikens Boyd on the other side. Stay with us. And now. Another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. It is a middays. We are live in the Element Well studio on this hump day, the first one of the year, 2024. So we welcome to the program now, kicking off the afternoon portion, Senator Nicole Akins Boyd represents District Nine, which includes Lafayette and Panola counties. I'm not going to talk about uh, your chair assignments yet because we don't know where that's going to be yet. We right? have no idea. We're all waiting. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate you coming on. So uh, a, a, a little um, commotion down there at the Capitol this morning. We had a little commotion at the Capitol. <laughs> um, as we understand, they called in a bomb threat. So we got notified very early, do not come to the Capitol <laughs> because um, they are sweeping the building. And um, we later have found out that there were bomb threats called into Georgia and Kentucky, Connecticut, and I'm told one more. So, yeah. um, Montana, right? Yeah. Rhino, did, we, did you list that one? I wasn't sure. So I think, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, anyway, so I think we um, got that this morning, but uh, Capitol Security was great to um, uh, Capitol Police let us know quickly, do not come in. Yeah. And so they did a massive sweep of the building, and they have given us the all clear to go. We moved um, our time to 2 o'clock today, so okay. we'll go in today. Okay. So, and uh, Representative Becky Curry was on the program earlier. You've got uh, some statewide elected officials that uh, have to go through their ceremonious swearing-in today, right? Yes, we'll do that, and we'll do some of it tomorrow, too, and um, look at um, – we're very excited about it today at 2 o'clock. So, okay. yeah, we'll okay. um, get everybody sworn in and all official, and then we'll have the governor um, next Tuesday. And um, But we are down here, but we're all viciously right now trying to work on our legislation, trying to get it ready to go, um, looking at drafts from drafting right now. Okay. And um, meeting with everybody, trying to um, get those bills in line. So, what's the schedule on making the committee uh, uh, chair appointments and um, assignments? We, you know, we have not been given a schedule. I know the House um, actually just asked for it because they couldn't do it earlier because they only officially elected their speaker yesterday. They asked for um, the committee interest forms okay. to be turned in by this Friday. Okay. So it should take them um, a little bit of time to kind of fetter through that. Um, the Senate, we did that process back in November, I think it was, where we turned in, or maybe it was December that we turned in our um, preferences. And so I don't know when the lieutenant governor is set to announce that at this point. Okay. So. All right. Well, uh, so here we go. I did see that, uh, is there like a, a new committee the lieutenant there, governor announced, there, an efficiency committee or something to that effect? It's a, it's a, a governance committee, and it's going to look at state government from what we understand. Um, okay. There was a lot of talk last session, a lot of questions that came up as to why we have certain agencies that we do, how sure. it's organized that we do. And sometimes the way we've done it in the past is not the most efficient no process. Yeah. We have um, duplicity in some of the yep. things that we're doing. And so there's no need in that. And okay. so um, I think I'm hoping that I um, didn't give very many details yesterday, but I'm very hopeful that this committee will really um, better out where we've got those inefficiencies in state government and we can do um, hopefully some um, really kind of reorganize some things where they need to be reorganized yeah. and get um, a better system in place. So. Yeah. Of course, you know, any time that that should involve the elimination of staff, that's always a, a very controversial well, issue. Well, we have eliminated a great deal of staff over this past four years. Yeah. Um, we have done that um, there, um, and we have eliminated a tremendous amount of state pens. And yep. to the listeners out there who don't know what a state pen is, 
um, it it's basically the position. Yeah. And so we had a numerous amounts of state pens that were not filled. Yeah, not being filled. They were not being filled, and so we got rid of those. Yeah. And um, so we have done a great job over the last four years of really trimming down government. Yeah. Um, best that we could, and so um, we have um, really worked on that, and so I'm really optimistic of what um, we have a lot of boards and commissions boy don't we i mean <laughs> and the question is it's a full-time do, job to appoint them I mean, for the governor's office it's yes and so the question is do we need that many boards and commissions um, maybe if they have a super specialty they need to be there but there's some that could be merged and yeah. combined and as this process has gone on this past four years we found out boards some boards and commissions that aren't doing a great job hmm. and um I don't want to call them out today, but um, I think you'll see that maybe those boards and commissions need to be merged, and we need to find, um, you know, a better way to do these things. Okay. So um, it's probably something we should be continuously looking at in government. Absolutely. I think that's why it's a good permanent committee. Um, we need to always be looking at our efficiencies, just like any private, private entity. Business. Sure. Yeah, just yeah. like any private major corporation would do. They have people. They have parts of their organization that look at efficiencies yeah. and so i think it's a smart move on the lieutenant governor's part to really do yeah. this committee we so. call it bpr business process reengineering by yes. the way it's a, it's a term that we yeah. often use in the private sector and there, there there are other acronyms to refer to that that uh uh, a procedure as well, if you will. But yeah, I, okay, so good. Yeah. Um, I think there's some opportunities there. Uh, I'm going to mention something that's kind of kind of small, but it's always been a hang up with me that I think uh, to help us in this arena, and that is the law that uh, currently exists in Mississippi that uh, prohibits a public sector entity from absorbing credit card fees. And uh, the reason I say I think that would that something we ought to repeal that would go a long way towards. Um, achieving efficiencies is, it, as you well know, there are a lot of people that could transact with the state or their city or county um, online if they didn't have to absorb those credit card fees. And my guess is we need a whole lot fewer people in buildings to deal with that uh, th- those transactions than well, we do now. And I will tell you, I actually have approached, um, okay. particularly after the pandemic, because okay, sure. we ne- had more people doing that, and I had my local entities approach. And um, basically what came down from the lawyers is um, that would be a donation. And so we have a constitutional provision in the Constitution. A constitutional provision. So the constitutional provision kind of – so it might be something we need to make a constitutional change on, own those particular credit card fees. But they did come down that uh, – talking with the lawyers, it was a problem because that would be considered then a donation. What in the world is that doing in the Constitution? Well – D- donations are prohibited. I get it. So anyway, so but it is something that um, my local um, government um, entities approached me about. Okay, and so I was like, guys, we got to change this. This is illogical. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, uh, paying property taxes, renewing car exactly. tags, all that, those kinds of transactions, and you know, when the deadlines around, you know, this all, all the the offices, the tax collector offices in the state got lines. Yeah. Exactly. So that's what, um, so we absolutely have, um, we are continuously looking at that and trying to push the envelope and say, okay, is that really a donation? So, Um, well, I'm encouraging you to continue to work. I will do that. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I honestly do think that could, uh, that could help. All right. So, uh, lots of, uh, I think, High-profile issues that pretty much everybody knows about that uh, the legislature is going to going to take up. What's on your radar? Um, well, I'm going to continue um, 
chaired the Women, Children, and Families um, Committee last year. Yeah. We did 11 pieces of legislation. We got passed in one session on that, but those particular issues. I'm going to continue um, looking at that. We're going to let some of those laws take effect okay. um, and see how they pan out and do that. But then we also had um, did a lot of work this summer, even during an election year. Um, we um, really had some great committee processes going on. We had an early intervention task force. And I have to give a shout out to all these citizens that serve on these task force. We had three different ones going on. We had a youth court task force. We had an adoption foster care task force, and we had an early intervention task force. And those citizens from around the state do that. There's no money. There's no per diem. They um, work, and our committees worked really hard this summer on those three particular issues. So um, we're going to do some probably technical changes on adoption and foster care so we can move those children out of the foster care system faster, get them to permanent homes faster. Um, they recommended a lot of technical changes um, to do that. So I think those will be forthcoming. Um, on the early intervention um, system, we hopefully will be continue that task force. We know that we have kind of a broken early intervention system, and we are working directly with the health department. Um, and they have stepped up and made some significant changes and are continuing to make those changes. Dr. Edney has showed great leadership on that. And um, we are all working to do that. So hopefully that task force will continue um, so that we can uh, really make that system a much better system and serve those children earlier, which we'll know will lead to a lot of changes. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things, I think, that's not well known by the public, that whole world. Right. Um, and, and if you have the opportunity to hear um, Andrea Sanders, who runs Child Protective exactly. Services, talk. Uh, it'll shake you to the core. It will. And she does a tremendous job she doing sure this. And she's yeah. really behind pushing a lot of these changes. You can hang around with Absolutely. for another second. We got yeah. Senator Nicole Akins Boyd in the Element Well studio. We're coming right back. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Senator Nicole Akins-Boyd. It's day two of the legislative <laughs> session, and now that it looks like we got the bomb threat over with, uh, you guys can get back down to the building and conduct uh, business. Uh, so I, I know that uh, you've served on uh, committees involving um, uh, families and, and health care in the past. Uh, you've got some background in that as an attorney, your husband, a physician. You have some exposure. 
you probably end up, don't you think, in some capacity in those committees? Is that kind of what you expect? I have no, you know, at this point, we have no way of knowing, but I'll always, no matter if I'm on a committee or not in that, I'm going to be working kind of in this arena, um, have a background, too, also in working in public health initiatives and, and making systemic changes in the state that is unhealthy Yeah. and how we do that. And there's so many social factors, too, that enter into this. It's a complex problem very. that has to be approached, really, with very complex solutions. And so um, I'm looking forward to um, – I think this is very important. I think um, the lieutenant governor has continued to emphasize um, his – um, efforts to make sure that we are looking at our health crisis. Um, the speaker yesterday indicated that he was dedicated to looking at that. He did. Um, and so we saw the governor do something about that um, this summer and looking at hospitals. So I think we have um, a mission from, you know, undoubtedly three of our state's most important leaders that they are all looking at our health care issues. So, yep. And you have to think of health care, too, not just in health, but you also have to think of all the things that it impacts. So, you know, in November, you and I have talked many times about our labor force participation rate. Yep. The lowest in the country. It is, yeah. Um, and now, um, by a larger percentage of any we're not close to anybody almost in that percentage area so we kind of teetered back and forth with west virginia and they are surpassing us so what is what is causing this and health is a factor that i think plays into this um so we've got to really i mean that is the thing that as a state we have got to move that number of our labor force participation rate when you think about it right now we have half the people supporting the other half the people that's right and so effectively, that's right. Effectively, that's what it is. So we have got to move that portion of the population, a greater percentage of our population into looking at um, that. And the thing, too, that's really interesting about this, and I think I've said this time and time again on here, is, uh, you know, we have these opinions about who this is not working and who's working or whatever. You know, one of the most interesting statistics to me is our single mother labor force participation rate is always 20 points higher than our general population. Interesting. So you can't really uh, uh, attribute it to that. No. They're they're staying at home being a mother. No, no, no. So and especially our single mothers, they are out there trying to work, trying to get better jobs. And so that's oh. stuff that we really looked at last year when, because of that. That's stuff that we really looked at last year because we want to continue to help those that are trying to work. And so we looked at child care, um, things that businesses could do to help families with child care. We looked at some tax credits, some things like that, that we could do that with. And that's something we're going to probably continue to do because these are people actually trying to work. I think the question is employers all over the place are looking for people it it just seems like and i know we have some systems to do that that we could improve the way in which we we match up those that are not looking for work or not working with people that are looking for workers and something else i've I've thought about senator is i wonder if it makes sense just to to commission somebody some group to go into these communities to find these people who are on the sidelines and say how come you're not working? Well, and, you know, one of the things that I really 
I'm really pleased with this program um, and having it involved in really changing community health indicators. This is something that I think is a really good program that the state is really impacted. On, and I've seen these career coaches that are now yeah. going into your high schools. CTE especially. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What they're doing, though, is they're going into the high schools and they're really targeting those children who maybe wouldn't be actively going into the workforce. Yeah. And they're looking at those kids who maybe families are not really engaged hard in the workforce and they're really targeting those children and making sure that those kids are actively getting into the workforce if they're not going on to higher education and making sure they get that training and stuff like that those the stories that you are hearing from those career coaches are phenomenal Hmm. what you're also hearing as an ancillary effect too is then a, a parent may get involved more in the workforce when the child gets more involved in the workforce. So it's having a trickle effect among that family. So I do like, and you hear these anecdotally, there's not been, you know, quantitative research on it, but we get a lot of qualitative stories from that. And so I really, that has been a really successful program. You can see that um, we are doing across the state. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I, so I'm really excited about that. I'll tell you another thing too on that that's really kind of interesting is I was at Toyota and I was at GE plant in my area. And did you know that they, both of those national employers, that these plants in Mississippi have the largest female workforce of any of their plants in the country? I'll be darned. And so I have heard that that is not that unusual from some of our other plants in the country you know, that have darned. big national plants. So um, Didn't know that. Yeah. So it's very fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. So Toyota is putting in a child care center um, and um, to really make sure that and not just for women, but for the men as well, to sure. make sure that they have full 24 seven child care opportunities for um, their employers. And that's cheaper than them staying home. Exactly. When they have those issues. Yeah. So, yeah. so we're excited to kind of see what it's a good benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's without government. Exactly. So it's the private sector saying, yeah, we think this is a reasonable benefit. We get value out of exactly. this. Exactly. And the things we're talking about really in workforce, they're not going to all come from government. We've got sure. to intrinsically change somebody's drive and motivation and ambition. And I'm hoping that churches, I'm hoping that communities will reach out and say, hey, we got to all get back to work. Yeah. Totally agree. And that's why I'm wondering if it doesn't make sense just to confront people and say, well, how come you're not working? I mean, it's their jobs here. There's plenty of them here. And and, uh, and it, it then makes you wonder, are you getting so many benefits that you're able to subsist just with that? Because it... I don't see that it amounts to a whole lot, honestly. I don't. Especially in our state. Well, and I don't. And we, our state has the highest percentage of people on disability. Yeah. And so you do wonder what health care issues have related to that, how much of it is mental health. Yeah. And, um, and so those are things that we're going to have to find the answer to. Agree. It, we, I don't know the answers right now, but we got to find the answers if we're going to raise that labor force participation rate. Yeah. And we've got to do this for us to, as a state to succeed. All right, a couple of other things that are a little outside of that realm that I think the, the people are certainly looking for is the, the ballot measure process. Yes. You got any thoughts about that? Well, I had a meeting this morning. Okay. Interesting that you say that. So yep. I had a breakfast meeting this morning with a couple other senators and um, really looking at the nuances of what we're going to propose again. We'll pr- be proposing that again this year Okay. and um, seeing where we can get, if we can get further than we did last year on it. 
And um, so we met this morning and we're kind of um, going through some stuff right now, kind of making a final determination what that legislation will propose will look like. Okay. Uh, education freedom. I know you represent a district with uh, very high-performing uh, schools. I do. Um, public schools, uh, specifically. So any thoughts about that? You know, the speaker looks to get uh, something going, at least to, in discussion, to right. expand what we have uh, presently in the state of Mississippi. Well, and I... I you know, when everybody says these choices, education, freedom, school yeah. choice, yeah. there's a whole gamut That's right. of what that looks like in there. Um, I, um, and we've got some school choice right now we with um, some of the educational scholarships, we particularly do. those with special needs. Special needs, and dyslexia. You know, yeah. And, you know, I have a passion for trying to help those with special needs. Yeah. Um, I kind of, as we're having this discussion, though, I want us to all think about accountability because I'm pretty concerned right now. With our charter schools. Yeah. Um, we have, of our charter schools, only one of those is a C. The rest are DNFs. Yeah. And if we're going to be doing that, if we're going to be spending taxpayer money, we need to see better results from those charter schools. And so I have great concerns that, especially if a charter school is in a district where the public school is performing higher than that charter school is. Yeah. And so I've got huge concerns right now um, about what's going on with that. So I want to see better accountability. And I hope that we're doing that. But the other thing, too, is we're having all those discussions. Just like healthcare, we've discussed it's going to take a, a vast thing we also need to really be delving into our lower performing um, public schools okay and we've had vast improvement 91 percent if you take out the charter schools are performing at a c or better yeah. right now i know so, uh, i'm gonna ask you a quick question because we got to go yeah are you concerned that there's maybe a little bit of uh, inflation going on with respect to those measurements because there's been some concerns expressed about that I- have been asking the um, Department of Education and those particular questions, okay. and they are getting back to me on that. Okay. So, okay. yes. And we got a new superintendent that exactly. uh, you guys will have to approve here pretty soon. Exactly. We Confirm. Look, we look forward to having those confirmation hearings. Always good to see you, Senator. Appreciate you coming on, and let's have a good session. I know we'll be talking some more. Good deal. Thank you. We're coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio. Half an hour of middays remaining. Stay with us. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is uh, middays. The funny money, as Rhino likes to call it, Bitcoin, pulling back a little bit, it eclipsed 45K yesterday. It's way on up there. And I, then the Kramer catastrophe rule came into play. What's that? Jim Kramer <laughs> said, you can't stop Bitcoin, and immediately Uh-oh. it tanked. <laughs> That's right. That's the kiss of death, isn't it? Whatever Kramer says, do the opposite. Uh, yeah. Um, the Dow now has trimmed its losses a bit. It's down 155. Crude oil up two dollars and thirty-seven cents. It is uh, that's a bit of a surprise. Didn't see that coming. And then the Nasdaq also trending downward. Um, but I think there's kind of a show me the money 
going on out there. And and then again, we got the Jolts report uh, this morning. It's a jobs uh, report that basically analyzes uh, job opportunities and turnover and so forth. And, uh, you know, employers are still looking uh, for people. We're not seeing any mass layoffs. That's honestly kind of what the Fed is looking for to start uh, paring down interest rates. Uh, You know, that's thought to be anti-inflationary. So see where all that goes, man. Ken from Forrest, we were talking about the credit card fees, and that's something that I I felt should uh, be changed in the state for some time. Uh, I know a lot of people, you probably do too, Rhino, that say, yeah, I know I could go online and pay my car tag, my property taxes, if that applies. And there are other business transactions as well that uh, uh, that, that uh, citizens uh, complete with the gov- their government, and most of us are accustomed to online uh, transactional processing. Gosh, it's become a digital world in that respect. In the state of Mississippi, as you just heard, I didn't realize it was somehow in the Constitution, is prohibited from absorbing the uh, so-called swipe fees, the credit card processing fees that the credit card processors charge um, the merchants. And in this case, the merchants would be the state or city, county governments. I know a lot of people that say, yeah, I'm not going to pay that. I'm going to go stand in line <laughs> and uh, and take care of that transaction in person. Or I'm going to mail it. You see that as well, and wait. And, of course, you know, you're technically supposed to mail it and have that in before the due date. But if you think about that, that imposes a lot of work on those government organizations that, that process those transactions. You think about the people you got to have to handle in person transaction processing and then there's the people that have to uh, manually enter all of the uh, the checks the payments they receive in the mail and post those correctly so there's a lot of labor involved in that and of course the the possibility of error anytime you got human intervention like that you doesn't mean they're incompetent it's just you do that many, you're likely to make an error. Um, and then the, the delays. I've had a situation where I uh, paid, so I pay my property taxes directly, and um, I had a situation where I sent my payment in the mail. And uh, there was a, a report uh, done. I, should, I shouldn't say that. It was a background check for something I was applying for. And it found that I had outstanding property taxes. Okay? And I'd sent the check in like three weeks prior, wondering why has it then been updated and posted yet. So I got in my car, drove down to the tax collector's office in my county, and I stood in line, you know, to ask questions of the of one of the folks that help people with their their various needs, payments of property taxes car tax, etc. And when I got up there, they said, oh, you need to talk to so-and-so in an office. 
that handles the processing of payments received in the mail. And I did. And I promise you, this is what happened. This was like four years ago, five years ago. Walked into her office and just very respectfully asked the question, say, hey, I'm just here. I'm looking for the application of my payment. And she pointed me to a stack, gigantic stack. I don't mean like one stack. I mean a pile. I'm describing it. It's like three or four feet wide. I'm not kidding. Of envelopes full of checks, payments on property taxes. And it could be car tags as well. She pointed to it. She started to cry because she knew she was behind. I, I wasn't trying to call her out for that. And you know what I, I did? I said, look, I'll just write you another check. i got to get this background check. I'll do a stop payment on the other one. Even if you apply it, it's not going to deduct from my account. And I did that. But I felt sorry for her. I felt bad that, you know, she has you have this huge rush on deadline day. And I'm thinking, man, I wonder how many of those are because folks don't want to absorb the credit card fee. Could have done that without um, the processor there having to worry about it. Not to mention the pile of paper and just the hassle and the delay. Little thing, but could make a big difference if you think about it. And, I I mean, when you think about efficiencies in government, and, of course, the other thing that I have voiced support for is repeal of the personal services statutes that allow certain services in the public sector, in the public domain in Mississippi, to be procured without competitive bidding. And you see this really... um, being leveraged at the county level as much as any, the city is to some extent as well, where supervisors and city councils, et cetera, will contract for various services that are exempt from competitive bidding, and it's kind of a popularity contest, honestly. But the biggest thing is, hey, is that the best value for the taxpayers? We don't know. We didn't seek any other proposals. When it comes to the constitutionality of what we now know as a donation in legalese it feels like this may be the easiest constitutional hurdle to overcome if what i'm reading is correct I'm, okay. I'm not a lawyer okay but from what i can find the ban in the constitution is from the mississippi constitution article 4 section 66 okay it says no law granting a donation or gratuity in favor of any person or object shall be enacted except by the concurrence of two-thirds of the members elect of each branch of the legislature. Okay. There you go. Well, that's what the senator was talking about. So you just got to get two-thirds from both houses. Now, look, I, I do believe if we did this and it meant, hey, look, our volume of in-person and mail-in is down to the point where we don't need as many people, I do believe it'd be a problem because you know these these folks and – and it's it's no disrespect for them whatsoever, but if you're looking at achieving efficiencies in general, I mean, I just know this from my business experience. There's nothing that's more expensive than people. It it does mean some reorg, and that often means restructuring the staffing model, right? And I mean, maybe there's some way we could accommodate that so that it is um, kind of a soft landing. But 
honestly, when I look at when you go to the tax collector's office, and I'm not trying to just pick on them, but it is true when you're when you're approaching the deadline, it's a line. Now at mine, the tax collector occupies an old bank building, so they have um, they have um, outside tellers. You know, they have a teller station and the vacuum tubes, and literally you can process your payments the same same way you can in a drive-through teller at a bank because that's what it was designed for. It was it was vacated, and the tax collector took it over. But there are people in there that are processing those. Everybody that sticks their their payment in the tube, right? And then there are people inside, just like a bank, that are handling folks that are sometimes literally lined up outside the door. And I'm thinking, with all it, and they're all got phones in their hands. Of course they do. But rather than paying and and absorbing that fee themselves, they're perfectly fine with standing in line, um, either in their vehicle. And and I know you may think I'm exaggerating that, but go down there when it's when it's deadline day. And I think most folks will know what I'm talking about. Someone here in the C Spine, yeah, Bubba and Starkville says Lowndes County Tax Office does not accept credit or debit cards. Well there you go. That's that's the reason. So it's just far less efficient. And again, it sounds like we we uh, it's a hurdle that we could overcome. But based on what Rhino just shared with us, we what need two thirds of the chambers. Two thirds right? of the members elect of each branch of the legislature. Okay. Well, I'm highly recommending that they do that. I'll just it just uh, you know the idea to me of people standing in line to do something they could do in two seconds anywhere in the world. It I guess it just kind of hits me. I <laughs> can't help it. We are coming right back with a final segment here on uh, Middays. Stay with us. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on! Let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. Little Simple Minds. Great video. Another quintessential 1980s era video. Jimmy from Enid says, include the processing fee and the price, but if someone wants to pay cash, give them that amount and a discount. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, the, the fee isn't the price. That's the problem, Jimmy, is that people won't pay it. They will go stand in line and endure the pain. But the, the, um, Giving them cash. So again, I think what folks are missing here. I'm not trying to change the the payment structure as much as I am achieve efficiencies, and that is best done by shedding headcount in offices and physical facilities. It costs money to operate. That's the goal here. So if you gave people a discount if they paid cash, that makes it worse. That means you'd have to have. Hey, I can get a discount if I come down there and pay cash. Then you got to have more people. In more offices, you're not. In fact, more costs would, would offset, add to the discount provided. What I'm trying to get to is come up with some way for the state 
to absorb the credit card costs, it would be more than offset, I believe, and I haven't done the modeling of this, by the reduction in the number of staff and buildings and facilities and offices and transaction processing um, resources we'd need. That, that's what I'm trying to get to here. And it's a, it may be a small thing, but anytime you talk about efficiencies in government, that always starts with, I think most people think about, would you agree, Rhino? How many people are working in government? I'd say most people. That's their measurement of that. That's their their key performance indicator. Achieving government efficiency means we got less people working in government, drawing a payroll and all the benefits that go along with it. So Paula Meridian says 37, 3.75% or $3.75 to pay my water bill online. There you go. That's exactly it. Most of them probably have maxed out credit cards on the ceasefire tax line. Yeah, but if they're able to pay with a check, they also have a debit card. So that means they got money in their account. And if they're not paying, then they're delinquent. That's not the problem. problem isn't delinquency. The problem is the assets, the resources, the people, the offices, the systems, all the above you got to have to process something that could be handled self-serve. And speaking of, it's gas stations. When we went to self-serve gas stations, we got we got rid of the gas stations did people that come out and pump your gas. Huge cost savings, and most people prefer that. Now, um, was it New Jersey? I think just finally repealed an ancient law that now allows self-service because prior to that unions prevented that nope you want gas in new jersey when i was up there in the 90s late 90s it blew me away i'd never seen that since i was a kid what do you mean i can't pump my own gas you looking at that it's new jersey is the last state that remains okay a self not not allowing self-service so they still have it yeah there are gas station attendants. It's, As of November 3rd of last year. All right. It's also why, if you check it out, the price of gas is considerably higher there. Because they got to pay the labor to pump your gas. Think about that. It's, it was so, Oregon that lifted their 72-year-old ban. I knew there were two states remaining. I didn't know the other one. I knew New Jersey was one. I just knew that because I lived up there, and I hadn't seen that since maybe the 60s, you know, where... What? A, I was getting out of my car, and somebody said, oh, no, stay here. Here comes the Can I help you? Hey, could you put $8 in there? Apparently there's also two cities that outlaw retail customers from pumping their own gas, the city of Weymouth, Massachusetts, oh, man. and Huntington, New York. Well, there you go. So crazy stuff, man. Unbelievable. Paying bills with online banking costs me nothing. Not sure if my bank is paying a fee. I pay all bills on my online banking app. Yeah, that, Jeff and Greg. That, and Jeff, that's just a service your bank's providing to get your account. That makes sense. I mean, it's just a free market at work. And that's a little different than the credit card processing fees. That's a, that's a, because the, the, um, uh, the back end processing is different when you're doing uh, direct payment out of your checking account than when you're uh, using the the vast credit card, debit card uh, infrastructure to process those. That's why there's a fee to pay for that, essentially. Uh, Oregon requires it. Last year I got scolded for pumping my gas. Attendant flipped out on me. There you go. That's on the ceasefire text line. <laughs> I just got my car tag renewal. They've increased the mail fee from $1 to $5.50. There you go. So, again, I, I'm just trying to come up with some ideas to achieve those efficiencies and – 
I still maintain that's that starts with uh, restructuring in, in, in incorporating new processes uh, uh, that um, reduce or grossly grossly reduce or eliminate fully the need for staff and other assets and resources just to process transactions that people could do on a self-service basis. That's the old deal. We are out of time here today. We thank you so much for joining us. We will be back with you again tomorrow, the Gallo Show down at MEC's Capital Day. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.